Welcome to Flourishing in Medicine from Surviving to Thriving. I'm your host, Dr. Mick Krasner, and this podcast produced by Empro, a medical professional liability insurance carrier headquartered in New York State. This podcast is just one of many parts of Empro's forward-thinking peer support activities. I'm so excited to share with you today my conversation with Dr. Christina Tina Runyon, who is a clinical psychologist, previously a professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and now with Tend Health, a company she co-founded that provides specialized, private, and accessible mental health care and education to healthcare professionals and consultation to healthcare organizations willing to invest in their most precious resource. An expert on health, professional, and especially physician stress, she finds that being valued and finding a place of value within the healthcare ecosystem is central to being able to sustain energy, quality, motivation, and well-being. Her translation of the effects of stress on us individually and collectively in healthcare, long a challenge given the nature of the work we do facing into suffering and uncertainty, and heightened by the pandemic, helps normalize and appreciate the ways our nervous systems are doing exactly what they are designed to do. And she outlines ways we as individuals and the healthcare system itself can bring capacities already present online to help restore and recover our well-being. A strong admirer of and advocate for health professionals, I am sure you'll find this discussion with Tina Runyon uplifting. And now, enjoy my conversation with Tina Runyon. Well, welcome, Tina. It's really wonderful having you here. You offer so um, many new and good perspectives and helpful perspectives to health professionals um, when it comes to flourishing in medicine. So I, I like to start this interview with just a question about your story. Mm. Mostly it's a question about what got into you to want to be in a health professional in the first place. Mm. And I say got into you, you know, a lot of us can't help it. It's, it's either through experiences we've had very young growing up or something that affected us or something during our educational process that really kind of inspired us. And mm-hmm. so what was it for you, if you could just share that story of your kind of the origin story of you, Christina Runyon, as a health professional? Yeah, well, first, delighted to be here with you too, Mick. Thank you for the invite and opportunity for this conversation. And for me, in terms of origin story, I can't point to a single moment or event. And I know precisely what you're talking about, because I often ask people that I'm health professionals that I'm working with clinically about their origin story, because I'm always so curious about, you know, whether this was a path they were pursuing from very young or had sort of a crucial incident. And so for me, it was, and often it is a single event for people. For me, it wasn't. I think it was a, a gradual unfolding of wanting to be of service in some way and being um, sort of perpetually compelled by stories and people's stories. And I, I actually thought I wanted to be a physician. I started college as a chemistry major. A couple of unfortunate incidents in the lab sort of <laughs> reminded me that maybe that was not my strength. And, um, and I was always drawn to the, the, the sort of stories, the human aspect of whatever people were experiencing medically. So there was a book of a compilation of a piece of my mind essays out of, the, out of JAMA that was in a, in a book that I still have on my shelf somewhere when I was, I think I read it in college. And so that was sort of the, the narrative piece of things and people's relationship with their illness, relationship with their clinicians and their families are sort of going through was what really drew me. So I realized that it wasn't actually the medicine that I was interested in, but the total experience. And so that really led me to clinical psychology and specifically health psychology of that interface between um, health and illness and people's emotional and psychological and relational experiences with that. As a health psychologist, you know, the public has turn to you as an expert in the psychology of health, of well-being during the pandemic, especially, Mm -hmm. you were called on to comment and help us 
come to terms with, we could say, normalize in some way the experiences that we, we were having, which we, as uh, we collectively as a community, mm -hmm. world community in a sense, uh, were having. And a lot of it relates to this, the sequelae of having what you've described as this exquisite stress physiology, mm -hmm. exquisite because it's, it is beautiful and, and has kept us alive as a species. Um, so if you could, we're going to shift a little bit because I really think the listeners would like to hear about uh, how this works. Can you walk us through the, the normalcy of what we've experienced in our bodies and in our minds during the global pandemic? We're going to mm -hmm. not stay on the pandemic. But, okay. Um, uh -huh. what, what is the brain and the body trying to do? Why is it doing it? How is it helpful? Mm -hmm. And how is it uh, challenging to us as well? So um, I do use that word exquisite um, in terms of our baked in physiology because it has served us for thousands of years. And, and I think it really was a common experience that many people have had but didn't necessarily have language for or connection to until the pandemic occurred. And then we were all sort of um, very quickly thrust into this shared experience. And so our stress response is, is innate to all of us. And it's a very predictable cascade of events when we face something that are sort of the primitive part of our brain assesses to be in excess of what maybe our resources are in the moment or what we can cope with. And that sets off a cascade of things that are really advantageous for us to meet that moment. And that happens at a, at a hormonal level, kind of our neuromodulators and down into our physiology. So when we meet in acute stress, our amazing amygdala, sort of that fear center in our brain fires and says, uh-oh, and then sort of, we don't have to get to your, your listeners sort of all probably know all of the anatomical and functional structures, but I mean, essentially it, it sounds the alarm to prepare ourselves to uh, fight or flight, flee, or to really sort of shut down or play dead really, uh, sort of to freeze. And so that physiology is, is highly advantageous in those moments of acute stress. Our heart rate increases, our blood pressure increases, blood is diverted away from our digestive system to our major muscle groups so that we can fight or flee and sort of have increased strength or increased speed. We are, there's changes in our immune functioning, changes in our our, our sweat and perspiration, our hearing, our, our visual acuity, all of these things that are um, really helpful in that acute moment of stress. And so these are, these really were pretending increased survival sort of back in the, in the day. And, and those are really useful for those really intense moments that we've all probably faced, whether we're driving on the, on the highway and need to respond quickly or really in acute stress events where we have to respond very quickly. But that same physiology happens at much lower levels of threat and even happen based on a perceived threat or a conjured threat even in our own minds. And so you can get that under the skin reactivity that many people will name really as anxiety or even panic. Um, and, and so in those lower threat events, it's actually not as helpful and it can feel very distressing and maybe even causing some harms to our body when that is occurring for too long, too intensely or too frequently, which happens a lot and happened a lot for healthcare professionals during the pandemic. And frankly, I think happens a lot for healthcare professionals just once you sort of hit the ground clinically or even probably in, in, you know, in medical school with exams, right? This stress response is being activated pretty chronically and that creates something that we call you know, an allostatic load where over time, the system is just having to respond with that stress response again and again and again, creating sort of a chronic pressure on the nervous system that can't, does not have time to recover. 
It doesn't have time to respond. We have some other um, facilitative parts of our nervous system, which we can talk about as well to sort of calm that response. But what we found, I think, in the pandemic and what is true, I think, in many healthcare settings is there's not time or space to actually engage the restorative parts of our nervous system to actually help uh, counterbalance and recover from that ongoing stress response. Yes, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned the part, and I'm, I'd like to highlight it and actually move toward that about yeah. that it's not just from the pandemic in the case of health professionals, but yeah. it may be something that's um, endemic to just being in the health professionals professions. So if we could just kind of talk a little bit about the unique case, we could say of health professionals, physicians, nurses, uh, mental health workers, etc. And can you, you know, let's talk a little bit more deeply about how the healthcare system long before the pandemic mm -hmm. was experiencing these same kinds of effects chronically on its professional staff and other staff, frankly, you know, from that physiologic, neurologic, immunologic, social yeah. perspective as well. Yeah, the, um, I mean, I'm fascinated um, really by, you know, sort of the, the life and work of the health professional. I feel like it's something that's so unique and so different than many other chosen professions. And so people who choose to enter into those professions, again, usually have an origin story, but they also have a drive to care for others, to do good in this world, to be of service. And that puts them in the arena where they are facing suffering every day and facing a lot of uncertainty as precise as sort of and and the scientific advancements of medicine have gotten over time you know as a as a clinician i know as a clinician you are in the realm of uncertainty every day <laughs> right every every moment i mean on occasion there's things where it's like oh i know exactly but there's a lot of uncertainty and so it's it's really like no other profession amplified by the pandemic for sure but people are facing you know every day every clinical encounter a lot of uncertainty when when the person or people sitting across from them are suffering in some way and they're suffering usually emotionally, physically, often socially, relationally, and sometimes environmentally as well. And there's only so many tools in the toolkit a, health, a single health professional has to address all of that distress. And you are faced with that um, repeatedly over time, whether you're ambulatory care or inpatient care, for the most part, other than probably, well, child checks, you know, which are delight. When I worked in primary care um, for many, many years, I would always elbow my way into well child checks just to have a little, a little, a little reprieve and sort of delight in look how many things are going well. But otherwise, it's just continual facing that that person or people sitting across from you that want answers, want certainty want a reduction in their pain, distress, often don't want what is happening to be happening. So there's a lot of resistance there to even sort of moving forward. So sometimes it's working on acceptance. And so the healthcare professional, I think, is faced with and tasked to do a variety of different things that go well beyond what they could handle with just medical and procedural knowledge that is has been historically the focus of their education. And they're sort of missing uh, another strong, I think, component of that of that stool around, I think there's an improvement around communication, around the psychology of illness and how to kind of address that for people and then how to meet their own moment. So that stress response that we talked about is often activated in every encounter. And then you put many, many encounters like that in a single day where then people are, are rushed and they're feeling late and they don't have time. And so for many healthcare professionals, you have a pretty chronic activation under the skin of that stress response that is not being that's not being met at all during the day. Yes. And um, to use kind of the frame that you were talking about earlier, having to do with the perception or appraisal and resources. So maybe using that kind of frame, what are some of the elements of what can be done for the health professional short and long term, looking at you know, the domain of appraisal, looking at the domain of the resources, what are some resources that could be built and what are some ways in which we can examine how we are um, framing that experience? Yeah. 
Well, it's a it, the question sort of um, leads me to just sort of I think state something that is very ubiquitous in this space around flourishing in medicine and kind of the issues of burnout and the quote unquote system drivers of burnout and how some of the resources really are in many ways the responsibility of the organization and the healthcare system to fortify our healthcare professionals with adequate resources, whether that is through staffing, through sort of assistance with the electronic medical record and sort of managing the inbox, whether that's with scheduling, all of the things that ultimately come down to sort of how we pay for those resources. So I just want to call that out. But I think what your question is really about is sort of what are the intra and interpersonal resources that people can can learn, can lean on, can call upon to help them meet those moments as a healthcare professional. And this is very much where, um, obviously this is my line of sight as a psychologist, but where I think sometimes we do a disservice when we get too dichotomous around, it has to be the system folk fix. And my experience in working with a lot of distressed healthcare professionals is that fix has, that the promise of that fix has been coming for a long time, right? It's just around the corner, keep going, we're gonna get there. And it works at a fairly glacial pace. Um, and there's a lot of perverse incentives that are maintaining the status quo. And so while I am very much in support of a lot of those system, fixing those systems drivers, in the meantime, we have a lot of people who are suffering. <laughs> and so I think your question, you know, sort of is really about those intra and interpersonal resources. And so one of the core ones I think is really around um, learning about and appreciating that inside of all of us, we actually have an innate resource to calm our own bodies and that we can meet those moments of increased stress through our own capacities. In fact, through our own wiring of our nervous system that has this counterbalance, the parasympathetic nervous system, countering that fight, flight, or freeze sympathetic nervous system, and that we can learn very specific skills often that are really in the moment skills, including you know various breathing techniques, um, self-compassion techniques that can calm what's happening underneath the skin to help people really be more present and meet the moment that's called, um, that's called for. And then you can do that intrapersonally. And then I think there are these interpersonal aspects that can help us too. the affiliative part of our nervous system, the tendon befriend part of our nervous system that also is wired can be leveraged through sharing stories, through connection, through not holding all of the fear and burdens alone, right? Is sort of sharing, having somebody hold some of that with you, being able to share about a mistake. This is something that I talk with people a lot because the culture does not have a lot of space for helping people to share and learn from mistakes as much as tuck them away, which really, it cuts off the learning. Mm-hmm. It cuts off the, the learning in a way that doesn't, isn't advantageous for, for the healthcare professional or for, you know, for their patients. So, so their interpersonal part can activate that tendon befriend. You get sort of good release of oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin and sort of that feels it. We all know what that's like, you know, sort of it feels better. And those are resources that our organizations can provide time and space for, for us to have some of that sharing. But we also have that internal resource if we, if we want to leverage that kind of on the regular, <laughs> minute by minute in our work. Well, I'd like to get uh, in a moment to some of those specific things that you just uh, kind of covered a little bit. But before we do that, I want to actually turn towards sort of an appreciation for the health professional themselves and what they what they already bring in with them. Can you name or maybe just think with me about what uh, are some of the qualities that are already present in the health professionals by virtue of their path, uh, the decisions they made and who they are, because they're kind of a a unique, there's a unique mold like you uh, described mm-hmm. uh, that brought them to that and how that can be leveraged uh, and how yeah. to bring those online. 
So in the work that I do, and, and, and I did a lot of um, education and training kind of for, for healthcare professionals, physicians in particular, and now I sort of work um, more exclusively in caring for people who, ha- physicians who have some level of distress. But I would say ubiquitously across sort of the, the distress group that I see now and, and those who seem to be, you know, thriving in some way, that, you know, there is a curiosity for sure that I think brings people to medicine. There is a deep love of learning. And so that, that interest in seeing knowledge as, as power, but power to be used for good and for others, I think is pretty common. There is a, often a high level of conscientiousness can border on sometimes sort of obsessiveness, which the system is happy to exploit. But that sense of conscientiousness, I think, is uh, makes people really good on this path of becoming a physician. And a cap- deep capacity for, for empathy. They care about the suffering for others. And empathy is, um, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's off, it's sort of clinical empathy in medicine is, it's, it's tricky because it can actually increase suffering because when people are really feeling alongside someone else their emotional empathy in addition to their kind of cognitive empathy is really high and they are taking that on which when we look kind of at um, using some physiological measures and even some functional MRI measures, it looks like they are suffering in the same way that the person they're empathizing with is suffering. And so it can, that level of empathetic distress, actually, if not um, leveraged towards compassion, which is a desire, both witnessing that suffering caring about that suffering, but a desire to alleviate it. And really that very slight U-turn towards wanting to alleviate it, but not holding the suffering. And so I think a lot of people come with a deep level of empathy. And the training is really around how do you teach that slight U-turn towards compassion so people don't get overburdened by the empathetic distress. You know, when I think about sort of the big five sort of first personality factors, kind of the, the ocean, you know, I think there's there's often a high level of of openness among clinicians and that sort of dovetails with with curiosity sometimes i think those get shut down a little bit through the pro the, through the educational process where the learning is so directed and, and sort of plumbing learning instead of an openness for curiosity mm-hmm. um, and the time constraints and kind of all the other factors start to prune a little bit at that curiosity and people's innate reasons for going and desires of going into medicine. But I think it's sort of a core personality level that characterizes a lot of who chooses to go into medicine. Yes, thank you. You know, now I want to come back to some of the specifics. You know, I, I completely agree with you and I'm a strong advocate in the teaching I do about the systemic drivers being really part of a large part, the large part, just like in errors, it's the, you know, systemic drivers that really create conditions in which errors occur, not necessarily Mm -hmm. some individual fault. And I think the last thing we want to do, I agree with you, Christine, is to tell our health professionals that there's something wrong with them, that they're not resilient enough, and that they have to, you know, learn some skill because they're they're just deficient. So that's the wrong message. On the other hand, I like to uh, quote Suzuki Roshi, one of the real famous uh, Zen teachers who said something like, um, you're already perfect. And you could use a little improvement, you know. So yeah. what are some of the things we can do, specific things to help meet the challenges that we have as health professionals, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed with responsibilities, tasks, as well as feeling a lack of control, which is a lot of it. We have all this mm-hmm. responsibility with very little control. Mm-hmm. And also, we, let's just expand that maybe. It's maybe a little challenging, but can you also counter that with what health systems can do to support their staff while also addressing some of these fundamental dynamics that contribute to the challenges that they're facing. Yeah. So one place that I work, a couple sort of core places that I, that I work a lot that I'll highlight here 
around organizations and sort of then dive into the individual is, you know, when people feel valued by their organization, that seems to mitigate burnout. And that's a little different than values alignment. So that is one thing that I that I look at with a lot of people that I talk with is is identifying their values and how well their values align for the institution that they're working in. Because sometimes people will conflate sort of medicine or healthcare as being sort of the problem. And sometimes it's just a misalignment of values with their particular organization or leadership. That doesn't mean they have to sort of quit being a clinician, which is where often people will go to is I can't do this work anymore, as opposed to is there a values alignment with your particular organization, which really starts with an identification of the personal values. And sometimes that is like really going back to the to the to their roots and sort of their their why, their reason for going into medicine. But when people have the subjective feeling of being valued by their organization, that tends to mitigate burnout. Now that means different things to different people. And so at an organizational level, sort of in addition to kind of those core things around control, autonomy, workload, is exploring for their healthcare workforce what would it mean to be valued? And I think that is really a bottom-up proposition because oftentimes, you know, we saw this a lot during the pandemic, you know, people were were valued by, you know, coffee and pizza. <laughs> and while that may have been sort of helpful to meet a very basic biological need, I also on the heels of that heard a lot of um, resentment. And um, resentment is a key theme that I hear from clinicians and physicians in training and physicians. And there are some unique ways in which that resentment coming out of training sort of plays out into the cultural status quo of medicine, I think. So for organizations really trying to understand not just the scope and nature of the problem, but really what is going to help these this particular group of clinicians feel valued and so i and i think there's some nuance based on um, settings based on geography based on demographics i think you know there there's people at seasons of their career in medicine where different things are going to be valued when people have very little margin in their life because they have a two, you know, two career household with young kids and very little margin, what is going to help them feel valued is going to be very different than somebody in their first maybe three years of practice or somebody who is, you know, at uh, has older, maybe older kids or doesn't have kids and is at their 20th year of practice. And so that's not a one size fits all solution, but I think there are answers there if the organization really does query kind of how to feel valued. At the, you know, and at the individual level, what I often hear when I ask people about what is, tell me about a time where you, you know, felt really valued. Tell me about a time when you were reconnected to your why and this was meaningful to you. Almost always, it's about their relationships with their patients. And almost always it's about having enough sort of space, which sometimes translates to time, but not always, to have the kinds of interactions that remind them about why they chose this profession and why they chose this particular specialty. And that actually penetrates so deeply into sustaining them in this really difficult work. Yeah. That's really, really helpful. I wanted to, to talk a little bit about the connection between being valued, as you discuss, and something you mentioned earlier, cooperation, connection, feeling tended to as an undergirding of both mm -hmm. individual assets, but also the positive functioning of a healthy healthcare team, healthy healthcare organization, a healthier healthcare mm -hmm. system. Those um, parts of that affiliative stress response that you alluded to. Maybe you can connect the dots for us and feeling valued. Could it be a frame that uh, we individually and our organizations can look at when in thinking about how to design a more workable environment? Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess the, there's this very specific example that 
comes to mind from that question is, you know, your listeners will be very familiar with in medicine, the, you know, doing M&M conference, morbidity and mortality conference, right? We, we, we rake excruciatingly sometimes sort of pick apart the things that go wrong. And while it's not done in a way to point fingers or to blame, but presumably to sort of prevent those things from happening in the future. And this is, uh, this is, this is not an indictment of medicine in particular, because I think a lot of the health helping professions that are very focused on sort of finding and fixing the problem, we historically, and I think systemically, turn a blind eye to what's working well. We don't have forums where we highlight and celebrate collectively something that worked really well and not how do we try to backfill and fix the thing that went wrong, right? Like after this, uh, somebody tried to go through TSA through, through an airport with a bomb in their shoe. Now we all have to take off our shoes at the airport, right? <laughs> like it sort of felt like, let's try to find that particular loophole and we're going to solve for that. But to say like, what is what are some instances where things went exceedingly well and the system was tight and worked and, and the handoffs were good and people felt cared for? And these are the things we might celebrate on sort of patient satisfaction, you know, reporting, but sometimes they don't always mirror what the team feels like really went well. So, you know, might we have opportunities individually and collectively to look at the bright spots and to celebrate those and learn from those and amplify those that actually helps collectively activate that you know that tend and befriend response and it's what i actually you know will ask people about and encourage people to do even as an individual practice is sort of what went well today what did I learn today? Because our minds are so, we have a negativity bias that is baked into all of us as humans to find and fixate on the thing that we don't, um, that we want to be different, that we don't like, that we don't like about ourselves. And we fail to recognize all of the small and big ways in which we show up and we do really, really well for ourselves and for our patients. And that becomes, the norm, the expectation. So anything less than that is seen as a mistake or a failure. And so I think as a system, as an organization, and then just, you know, as an individual system, we can sort of start with ourselves to start to highlight those, those wins. Yeah, that's really refreshing. I I'm thinking of to get there, you know, it isn't just, Mm -hmm. doesn't just happen. And the literature on teamwork is pretty clear about two main factors that really support healthy team functioning, which is communication. Actually, the quantity of communication correlates with quality, which is really fascinating, as well as the element of psychological safety. Those are two actually very connected things. So in order to have an environment in which you can safely and not self-consciously talk about what went well, you have to also create uh, an environment where there's a lot of communication going on at every level of team, let's say, or every level of the organization, as well as a, a safety, you know, feeling like you're not going to be stigmatized or, or it's okay. You're supported in telling your story about yes. you know, what really, what really went well. So. Mm-hmm. The psychological safety as a, a, you know, as a team and as an organization, I think we, one of the challenges I think in a lot of particularly hospital-based settings, different from ambulatory settings, is there's so much rapid shifting of who that team is on any given day, sort of our week. And particularly in training settings, you have people coming through. And so there's not a lot of, there, the, the team is not static. And so there's a fragility in that, I think often in terms of people having to constantly adjust to a new group of players and dynamics and personalities. And so that actually can weigh on psychological safety quite a bit. I, would it be okay if I read a short poem? I would love that. That would be fabulous. Um, So this is, when I think about this with medical providers, it's a poem by Rudy Francisco entitled Instructions. And he says, gather your mistakes, rinse them with honesty and self-reflection. Let them dry until you can see every choice and the regret becomes brittle. Cover the entire surface in forgiveness.
Remind yourself that you are human and this too is a gift. It's really, it's so honest and authentic and it doesn't deny, you know, that there's, we're not perfect, yeah. but it also in some way celebrates we're not perfect too, yes. right? Yes, yeah. yes. And that's yeah. where I, I, there's the, the covering up, the sort of denying, it, it robs us of the opportunity to, to be fully human and to truly learn from that so this idea of you know let them dry until you can see every you know every every choice but the the piece that is often missing is that self-compassion right cover it in forgiveness yeah um, and i think that is that's the psychological safety to be able to do that and the psychological resilience to carry that forward. That is how we learn, not from, not from beating ourselves up over and over again and expecting perfection. I agree with you, physicians are among the most resilient group of individuals. They've had to be, they've learned to be. And, and sometimes that comes with, a, with that self-critical edge that has propelled them and sometimes you know there's a little resistance to giving that up because there's some fear <laughs> that they won't continue to learn and grow and be as good and so that's a little dance and i work with people a lot on the ways in which that critical voice has served them the ways in which it hasn't and what might it be like to bring some internal psychological safety, some kindness, and how might that actually really ripen the conditions for learning and growth? Beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to shift a little bit because I'm, I'm really, what you've done uh, and the choices you've made in the recent years in your life have really shown that, you know, what's at your heart and what's really important to you, you've actually uh, with whatever risk is involved, you know, went and pursued mm -hmm. that. So I'd like you to talk about TEND Health, T-E-N-D Health, yeah. what it is and what, what's your vision and how's it going? Yeah. Oh, great. I, I was, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about TEND and, and just the preamble to that to say that I made a really significant shift in going to TEND and, and had many moments of meeting my own fears, my own doubts. It was a very risky proposition. So, so in 2020, um, I co-founded TEND Health with Joan Fleischman, who is also a clinical psychologist. Both of us were in uh, academic medical environments and very close to um, sort of the training of medical students and residents and fellows and working in primary care environments for many years alongside our physician and nurse colleagues. And for me, really seeing a very predictable arc of enthusiasm and uh, empathy and compassion and brilliance um, have a very predictable arc through training um, and through early years of practice that really made it unsustainable for many people. And it, it really sparked a curiosity in me as sort of what's going on that people are burning out and becoming resentful. And, and for many people, sort of what I call hosting their own private protest <laughs> against medicine. <laughs> in in ways that might show up as you know um, relationship problems or drinking too much or playing too many video games or things that sort of in privately they were protesting to sort of claw back some kind of agency or time or connection with something important to them that ultimately didn't serve them very well but was sort of a a short-sighted attempt to try to to meet the stress of medicine and so i got really interested at that point in curriculum development and thinking about how my perspective and the skills that I have as a psychologist might be um, advantageous for, for residents and fellows, particularly in family medicine. And then as I started doing this throughout the institution um, with other disciplines, I realized how devoid of that perspective many other disciplines were and how many mental health needs were going unmet. And so, so I saw the rising of uh, the numbers in terms of burnout and in terms of uh, anxiety and depression in physicians. And so 
wanted to solve for that problem um, in a way that I felt like hit many of the pain points. So Tend Health is a company that is exclusively dedicated to caring for the mental health and well-being of healthcare professionals. And we started in, we are um, a fully telehealth platform for mental health care, kind of full continuum mental health care, coaching, counseling, medication management, individual offerings and group offerings. And we started in the five states where my co-founder and I were licensed and we've grown now to be able to provide care in 44 states. And we have a model of care where we try to create something that's outside of the institution that is um, highly accessible and private for uh, for physicians in particular, although we see any healthcare professional. It is paid for often by the organization. So we contract with organizations so that whoever is identified as kind of eligible, whether that's the residents or fellows through GME or their medical staff, it's free to them and they can access it with a couple of clicks. We have now 35 psychologists on our team, all of which who have cultural competence in caring for healthcare professionals, either because they have worked or worked in, in medical schools or training environments or have a specialization in caring for this population. So we really ensure that if you come to see one of our clinicians, they're gonna get your world a little bit in addition to sort of what they bring as far as their um, skill set in terms of um, psychological intervention. And, and because we're not billing insurance, because this is paid for by the organization, which, by the way, I always say is, you know, is a way that an organization can say that they value their workforce. They can't make the work less hard, but they can offer this as a way that they see what what people might be experiencing and they want a safe place for them to go talk, whether it's one time about a bad outcome or whether it's an ongoing episode of care. It is a way organizations can value their workforce. But because we're not billing insurance, it really frees us up from having to diagnose or pathologize in cases where it is really just the endemic stress of being a physician that is resulting in whether it's burnout or other kinds of mental health sequelae, um, because we don't have to sort of say you have this diagnosis to justify getting paid for our service. That also really protects the physician's credentialing and licensing and even um, underwriting for disability insurance or life insurance because we um, we don't have to fabricate a diagnosis to get paid. So when they're asked the question, right, have you been diagnosed with a mental health condition, you might have seen a clinician or a practitioner for care, but our hand is not forced to diagnose you to get paid. So we've tried to create a model of care that um, really creates that psychological safety for physicians to access care and, and do so in a way that uh, their institution supports and honors while not giving any feedback or, or direct anything, any feedback that the organization gets is all anonymized, de-identified just so they know the service is being used. It's a wonderful uh, and new model in a sense of care. One of the things I've really appreciated about when you speak about depression, anxiety in this population, you usually couch it in language of symptomatology and not mm -hmm. pathology. And I think that's so helpful. And so many of our colleagues, you know, do have legitimate worries about their licensure, about their ability to stay in the work. And so this is just a wonderful way of, of doing this. So going to include the information in the show Great. notes so those Thank who uh, want to learn more about it can do so. I just have uh, about two more questions, yeah. somewhat related in a way, I guess. The first is, um, maybe you could just talk about, you, when you speak, there's this, this joy and you uh, exude just pleasure in being in this world. And I'd like you to talk maybe a little bit about the importance of joy and meaning in our mm -hmm. medical work. Why is it important? Do you think it's important? I'm assuming mm -hmm. you do, but mm -hmm. maybe I need to ask the question, do you think mm -hmm. it's important? And, um, and why? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, for me, it probably goes back to your, um, your very first question, sort of on the, the origin story of sort of why am I, you know, why am I here? sort of in a specific and kind of esoteric way like why what is my purpose why am i here and and i've i i derive a lot of joy from feeling like i am being of service to people in a particular way and using what i think are 
my particular interest and maybe gifts or proclivities to be of service in that way. And that for me is around connection and bearing witness and being able to um, hear stories that nobody else wants to hear, to sit with people in, in their uncertainty, in their suffering, and try to discern sort of what is my, what, what is my role to play in this moment, um, knowing there are most things I cannot fix. And I learned that long ago, and you know, there's a freedom in, in not trying <laughs> to fix. And there's a freedom in what I, what I hope I convey also is I don't see people as broken. There is actually nothing to fix. And so it's not just that I'm like, oh, I can't fix that. <laughs> I'm out. But like, this is part of all of it. And, and through my own experiences and hardship, really knowing that when we can be really um, honest and authentic about our own struggles. And, and even, even for me, sort of talking about the, the, init this, the starting tent health, so many moments of deep fear and uncertainty and noticing this, this part of me that wanted to scramble to safety, just give me, you know, this, this feels so risky and having the capacity to name that and sit with it and sort of trust that my passion in this will carry will sort of will carry me through my value in this will carry me through and so I, I know that my own experiences come to bear when i sit with people in that way as i know that theirs and their willingness to to go deep in that always makes them a better physician always mm. makes them a better mm. clinician and so that brings me a lot of joy because I feel like it's, you know, it's, I know I work a lot at the individual level, but ultimately systems are comprised of individuals. And so it's my small part to make the healthcare system better. So would you be willing to maybe just share a brief story of something that you experienced relative to this work you're doing now that was just particularly meaningful? It doesn't have to be the most meaningful thing, but just something that gives us a little sense of how you derive meaning. Mm, oh, so many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have many, many moments where, uh, you know, we'll, where I will get the kind of feedback from somebody that acknowledges that through our work together, they, they have chosen to stay in medicine mm -hmm. and have done so with um, a rebirth of, of passion and of importance. And, and sort of meaning in their work. And maybe it looks slightly different than when they than when we started. But yeah, I'm sort of I'm sort of thinking of like several people and they're kind of the amalgam together of mm -hmm. um, a lot of times it comes from people rediscovering the need and importance for their own boundaries to sustain them in this work in the way that they show up best. And so again, maybe it looks slightly different, but I always feel like it's a win when people choose to stay in this practice that they dedicated so much time and money and energy to do, even if it, even if it looks slightly, slightly different. Great. Thank you. Okay. And finally, um, what do you like to do for fun and enjoyment? And don't worry if your answer has something to do with the work that you do, because, you know, uh, it mm -hmm. sounds like that's really enjoyable, mm -hmm. but it could be something else. We just want to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, I would say for, for me, one of the most uh, joyful things is, is through movement. And I'm obviously a health psychologist, have always had interest in sort of the mind-body connection and the body as a source of a deep source of um, information, but also resource. So for me, a lot of my joy comes in things that are in movement with uh, yoga. I really love to hike. And so you have this combination of movement in nature and the experience of awe, which, you know, is is sort of right up there as sort of peak experience for me. I love to read nonfiction and fiction. I like to listen to music. I like to go to see live music. And what else? I like to cook. 
Lovely. What That's else do I like to do? I like to, you know, I like to meditate and be with people who are interested in exploring their inner inner world. Um, I'm taking a class on the Enneagram right now, which I find mm -hmm. fascinating mm -hmm. by this woman who is 90 years old and who has this deep well of knowledge about the Enneagram and articulation of those concepts in, in practice that I just, is, is, it's inspiring and I'm in awe of her. So that's fun. <laughs> Lovely. Well, there's a lot. Thank yeah. you. Is there anything else, Tina, that you'd like to just share with our audience uh, um, as we finish up here? I think what I would like to share is just my deep gratitude. And while I don't know everybody who's listening to this podcast, there is a commonality and a universality at some level in the story of what drives people to caring for others. And it's, it's beautiful and it's honorable. And I always say that I think our clinicians are the most precious resource in our healthcare ecosystem. And so I honor each one of you and am deeply grateful for the work that you do. Mm, thank you. Thanks for listening. We will include a summary of today's podcast and links to Christina Runyon and other references that were discussed in the show notes. I would like to conclude today's podcast with a practical exercise to help you flourish during your workday. The intention is for you to add this to the toolbox of skills that you can draw upon to enhance purpose, meaning, and well-being. Given what we know about our acute stress response and how, as was discussed in the interview today, the cognitive and emotional appraisal of events can begin that cascade, today's simple practice is designed to bypass the, that cognitive and emotional circuit by directing our attention somatically. A well-known practice, this is called, Where Are My Feet? Some of you may have done it before. And it can be called upon when one notices the earliest signs of anxiety or other kinds of distress. When needed or desired, simply bring your awareness to your feet. You may want to try this right now just to practice, asking yourself, where are my feet? What am I feeling? right now in my feet and dwelling there for as long as you would like a few breaths longer noticing as you direct your attention to your feet all that other stuff the cognitions emotions stories other sensations although still there have taken at least temporarily a back seat to simply investigating sensations in the feet you can try this anytime practice, you can call upon it when you were in that early or even later stages of distress or anxiety. I hope you found this podcast and the simple exercise I just shared with you useful, and I look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. If you'd like to learn more about MPRO, please visit www.myempro.com. And for more information about me and my work, please visit either www.mickkrasnermd.com or www.mindfulpracticeinmedicine.com. Thanks for joining us. <music>